Welcome to the Don't Knock It podcast where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, his church, and his word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and today's episode consists of my last sermon in Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, that I titled, Reasons for My Writing. So a brief note before I let the sermon play. With this sermon, Philippians became the first Bible book that I've preached through verse by verse. It came at one of the most special times of my life. I actually preached this sermon on the day my daughter Irene was due. It has been my it has certainly in all honesty, my it has certainly been my favorite sermon by far, in both through pep- preparation and delivery. My parents, my parents were even sitting with my wife during the sermon and it was all it was all just such a special day. So anyway, I pray it encourages you, that it, it, that it tugs at your heartstrings, and that you are reminded of the great God who put on human flesh to accomplish what humanity never could, right standing with God. Now, without any further ado, this is Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23, reasons for my writing. Uh, if you have your Bibles in front of you, and I hope that you do, please open to Philippians chapter 4. I have the wonderful privilege of finishing my first book, preaching verse by verse with you this morning. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Chris Ramirez. I'm one of the youth pastors here. Um, I am the husband of one wife and the father of a beautiful unborn baby girl who is actually due today. So, <laughs> so if I have to leave in the middle of teaching uh, chapter, or verse 13, that's why. (laughs) So hopefully you're at Philippians 4, uh, but as you turn there, let me pray for our time together this morning. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and this morning, Lord, we bow before your word, humbled, humbled, Lord, to be in your presence, to be filled by your spirit, and to be redeemed by the precious blood of your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that you go before us as we go into your word, as we explore the reasons for why we have this letter. Go before us, Lord. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me begin by reading the passage that we're going through this morning. Philippians chapter 4, I hope you're there. Starting at verse 10, let's look at it together, all the way to the end of the chapter. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippi by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have arrived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone." For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. 
but I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 20, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with you, the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is the word of the Lord. So obviously, this is the last portion of Paul's letter. So I want to briefly walk us through how we got to this point. The Apostle Paul, writing with the weight of a shackle on his wrist while in a prison in Rome, composes this letter to a beloved community of believers in Philippi, a city that is thousands of miles away from where he is imprisoned. He is writing 10 to 12 years after planting the church there with his missionary friends, which is a very important detail, a detail we'll, we'll see later as we make our way through this passage. The theme of this letter is primarily one of joy, which is quite ironic considering Paul has experienced severe pain and suffering, which the Philippians themselves will experience as well, if not already. This joy is expressed primarily through thanksgiving. The primary reason for Paul's thanksgiving is the faithful fellowship the Philippians have had with him during his time as a missionary and as a prisoner over the span of those 10 to 12 years between the planting of the church and his imprisonment in Rome. So what have we seen specifically in the letter itself? In chapter one, Paul opens his letter with his reasons to rejoice in the midst of suffering. In chapter two, we get this beautiful exhortation to live a life of humility which consists of considering others more important than ourselves by presenting three examples of it, starting with the utter humiliation of the Lord himself and then two of his faithful brothers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. In chapter three, Paul presents us with the goal of the Christian life. And that is this, pressing on for the prize of the upward call of God by understanding the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That is our goal. In other words, the goal of the Christian life is realizing that growing in relationship with Jesus is the most delightful pursuit for all believers. Chapter four, in the first nine verses, we saw what being a set apart people as citizens of heaven under the reign and rule of our King Jesus, not Caesar or any other government leader, truly should look like, which leads us to our passage for this morning. If you have an outline in front of you, Please grab it as we'll, walk, as we'll walk through it briefly. I titled this message, Reasons for My Writing. We will see, in this passage, we will see four reasons for Paul writing this letter in order for us to rejoice in the Lord through all of our prosperity and all of our suffering. The first reason is godly contentment. Paul writes to reveal the secret to experiencing true contentment and satisfaction that glorifies God no matter the circumstances. Reason number two is a grateful expression. Paul writes to express gratitude to those who have faithfully served him in the past 10 to 12 years of fellowship. Reason number three is God's delight. 
Paul writes to remind them that their sacrifices have truly been a delight to not only him, but to God himself as well. And then lastly, reason number four is a grateful greeting, a graceful greeting. Paul writes to demonstrate that gospel grace has the capacity to transcend any and all worldly power, a truly beautiful comfort for all of us. Now, handwritten letters are a lost art today, aren't they? Would you agree? When was the last time you sat down to write a letter to a friend or family member? Not a thank you card, not a baby shower card. We were very, very grateful for those. They have ministered to us greatly. But in the age of emails and text messages, the hand-cramping feeling, that hand-cramping feeling you get after pouring out your heart for a few pages has long been forgotten. And I have to admit, it's been a while since I've written one myself until a few weeks ago. I recently took a time to handwrite a letter to my dad. Now I don't have it with me because I wasn't intending on sharing it here, but oftentimes the reason behind why we write letters is much more important than the actual content of the letter. I mean, even as Bible teachers, we seek to figure out the actual actual reason why the author wrote what he wrote before we even begin dissecting the actual content. And actually, if you think about it, understanding the reason why someone wrote what they wrote makes the content much more special. With that being said, the reason I wrote a letter to my dad was because I'm becoming one. I'm going to meet my daughter soon. I begin the letter with, hey, dad, by now you're probably reflected a lot on how you were as a father, considering your son is becoming one. With me saying that alone, you don't have to read the letter in order to understand that it'll be a special one because you're aware of the reasons surrounding it. The reasons and circumstances surrounding the production of a letter are 100% worth spending our time reflecting on. And this is what we'll do this morning. For us, as we conclude our study through Paul's letter to the Philippians, we've already seen most of the content. Now, as Paul concludes his letter to this beloved church, we see his reasons for writing it. And we'll begin there at verse 10 for reason number one. Paul writes to reveal the secret to godly contentment. But I rejoiced in the verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Paul once again emphasizes the utter joy the Philippians have contributed to his life. As we will see in the next point, they have sent him resources while imprisoned, the most of any church of the region. By way of reminder, Roman prisons were not like how modern prisons are today. You're not provided clothing. You're not giving three square meals a day. You're not given a bed, which are all sponsored by the state. No, as a Christian, you are considered an enemy of the state of Rome once the moment you proclaim Christ as your Lord and Savior. So the only way you stay alive is if you have close companions to give you the resources you need to survive. 
as you are awaiting trial or a public execution. This is certainly something incredible to rejoice over, that they have helped Paul survive. But get this, Paul was not simply rejoicing over staying alive through the gifts themselves, but because of what the gifts represented, and that is faithfulness. The Philippians, who were radically changed by the gospel, were serving their fellow brother in the Lord. The reason he's able to rejoice is because of the, this revived concern, or flourished, as the New King James puts it. This word is a harvesting term that paints a picture of a plant blooming again after a, a period of dormancy. Kind of like how new crops spring up after winter. So with this meaning in mind of this word, Paul speaks of his joy when wintertime is finally past and springtime brings a new renewal of the Philippians' concern for him. This period of wintertime, so to speak, is what Paul is referring to when he says, but you lacked opportunity. Meaning the Philippians had the desire to, to serve him, but they couldn't. They couldn't support him for a time because he was unreachable. We can't say for sure uh, what this period was, but if Paul is writing from a Roman prison in Acts 28, which is the context of him writing this letter, this time of inaccessibility was probably, be, probably because he was shipwrecked at sea, starving with 276 other men for 14 days in Acts 27. Here's what this revived concern accomplished for Paul. It reassured him that the continuity of financial support is not a condition for the continuity of his friendship with them. In other words, his relationship was not transactional. If you do for me, I'll do for you. He didn't need to see gifts from them in order to feel loved and supported. He just needed to see effort. Many times we, as humans, allow a relationship to deteriorate because our wants and needs are not being immediately met. So we become, so we become like the world and say, this right here, this right here is not working for me anymore. So we're done. And, if, and as many of you know, as parents, the moment your relationship with your kids becomes a transactional one is the moment you lose them. Your relationship does not flourish according to how many gifts you give them. It flourishes when genuine concern and intention are, are expressed. So although these gifts ministered to Paul greatly and helped him survive, he was not dependent upon them. He was not dependent on them because he learned a very, a very valuable secret through his trials. The secret many of us fail to learn not only in the world, but sadly in the church as well. Verses 11 and 12. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of, of having abundance and suffering need. When Paul says that he doesn't speak from want, he means that he is not dependent on the church's resources to change his circumstances. 
in order for him to be content. This leads us to what we often think contentment is. That if I just obtain the right amount of resources at the right time, then I'll be content. My circumstances will change and then I'll be content. Let me give a few examples of how, what has fostered that understanding of contentment throughout our lives. One example is a baby crying and needs food or a diaper change. You come and feed or change them and they stop crying. They're content. Why? Because their circumstances changed. When a child is throwing a fit at Walmart and you get them the toy that they want, they stop because they, they're content. Why? Because their circumstances changed. When an adult is, a, is complaining about who's in office and they do everything in their power to get that person out of office and they get out of office, that person is content. Why? Because their circumstances changed. Sometimes we look at our lives and assume that this, this is somehow a sign that God isn't as good as he says that he is because my life isn't as good as I'd prefer it to be. Life not being how you want it to be does not give you license to feel sorry for yourself. Well, pastor, that's very inconsiderate of you. You have no idea what I've been through, but what I'm trying to remind you with is that God provides us with a solution. The solution is to take him Take it to him in humble prayer because he cares for us. And let me tell you something. It's hard to take it to him when you don't believe that he does. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a precious reminder. Faith in that promise, faith in that promise that he will never leave us breaks the power of all God dishonoring desire, all covetousness. Contentment is directly tied to believing that God is near and mindful of all of you. And it's hard to get that when you're not reading his word. To demonstrate the sheer power behind this type of contentment, Paul gives us both sides of the spectrum to demonstrate that no matter what extreme you're currently experiencing, that that doesn't and shouldn't determine your level of contentment in this life. We see those, those both sides of, of that spectrum, both extremes, when he says humble means and pr prosperity, being filled and going hungry, having abundance and suffering need. The three negatives, the three negative ones note the loss of prestige or status, to be humiliated, to be subjected to strict discipline. And then the three positive ones note the gain of wealth, abundance, a high social status, more than enough and amply supplied, as he says later in, in verse 18. Now you may ask, Chris, why would I need to be content when I'm living an abundant life? What's the threat there? Wouldn't my abundance make me content? 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 and 17 answers that for us. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read them here. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That's the threat. What's the threat, Chris? You're going to wander from the faith. That's the threat. It's not a threat if wandering from the faith means nothing to you. To have your hope fixed on the creation rather than the creator will cause you to walk away from the faith. That is a reality that we see all throughout the the Old Testament and even into the New. So by giving us both sides, he is emphasizing that our joy in the Lord is not heightened by prosperity, nor diminished by poverty. In order to have this perspective on life, it either takes a lot of life experience or simply thinking deeply about the life that you've lived so far. For Paul, it was both. Paul didn't learn this in an instant, but over a drawn out time filled with severe circumstances. I could imagine that he's writing these words, tears falling from his eyes as, he's remin- as he reminisces the events of his life that led him to learn this precious secret. Let's go over those here briefly. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked. And on top of all the external dangers he experienced, he also dealt with the internal anguish of being concerned for all of his churches. I am not naive to the fact that many of you here today have far more, far more life experience than I have. But I want to ask, have you reflected on your life experiences in such a way that has led you to godly contentment? Or have you hidden them? Have you hidden your life experiences away in a deep, dark corner of your heart for no one to see and left them there to rot so that you don't experience the true contentment found in Christ? Having contentment through both prosperity and poverty was so rare that Paul uses a a rare word when he says, I have learned the secret. This word simply means I've gained insight by being on the inside. In the Greek, it illustrates that all of nature depends on hidden resources. Just think about that for a moment. The most important part of something is the part that you cannot see or is the most difficult to see. I'll present a few examples. The grandeur of an oak tree is only possible by deep roots, hidden roots. The power of a rushing river stems from snow-capped mountains somewhere beyond what the eye can see. The daunting height of a skyscraper is only possible by a foundation hundreds of feet below the surface. And it's the same for the Christian. The word content is a description of a man whose resources are within him. Hidden so that he does not have to depend on anything outside of himself. It literally means self-sufficient. Well, hold on, Chris. Doesn't that fly at the face of everything we preach here? Self-sufficiency? I am self-supplied, self-sufficient. I can do all things on my own because my power comes from within, because I have all the resources needed within me. That seems very anti-Christian. 
It certainly is, unless, unless that power is not your own. Unless those resources are not your own. Now, everyone, I want to hear it like you actually believe it. Like you've been raised from the dead and will raise others from the dead with the sound of your voices. Like you've been empowered by the greatest act of love in history. You ready? Everyone, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This, this is the secret of being content. To learn and accept that we live daily by God's grace given to us in Christ. And that we can respond to any and every situation by his divine empowerment, empowerment made available by his Holy Spirit. I am self-sufficient in and only in Christ's sufficiency. That's what it means. Jeremiah Burroughs says this about how we tend to seek so many other things apart from what truly satisfies us and will make us content. He says, I quote, many men think that when they are troubled and don't have contentment, it is because they have but little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. The quote continues saying, that is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his, his stomach, he, he should gape open his mouth and take in the wind and then assume that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he didn't get enough wind. No, the reason is because the wind is not suitable for a craving stomach. End quote. The desire has to match the suitability of the solution. In other words, our sin and our emptiness problems can only be truly satisfied by him who can forgive that sin and truly fill us. Don Kistler says this, I quote, the person with a discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything God does for him is too little. That is a discontented man. My beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not about what you have. It isn't. It's about how you feel about what you have. The secret of contentment is the realization that life is a gift, not a right. It's not. It is a gift. Every single moment of every single day of your entire life is bought. It's lended to you. Contentment is also not the attitude of, well, it is what it is. Que será, será. What will be, will be. No, this acceptance is an active one. It's not a passive one. We, we are empty vessels filled to display true resurrecting power and glory filled by himself for himself. So to recap reason number one, the reason Paul writes this letter to is to reveal the secret to godly contentment. Now, that's our longest point for this morning but because there was a lot to unpack there. So now let's switch gears a little bit. If someone were trying to provide, if you were, if someone you, if you were trying to provide resources some, to somebody and they always said, no, 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 I'm totally content. I'm good. I'm good with what I've experienced and received already. Would you back off? Would you assume this person did not value your support or was ungrateful? That they never 
let you open the door for them, you would probably stop opening the door for them because you knew that they were probably going to be self-sufficient enough to open the door for themselves. Paul writes in his reason number two to correct that attitude. So reason number two, Paul writes to express gratitude to those who have faithfully served him. Verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So Paul turns from his discussion of learning to be content and returns to partnership. Here, he shines light on the importance of participating in the gospel and the advancement of it through shared affliction. This affliction involved both the outward oppression from his opponents and the inward distress of constant, constant spiritual attack. Yet through it all, he intends to express his gratitude to his beloved friends. He approves and commends them for their fellowship. Like a rabbi congratulating his disciple, he does not hold back a well done, good and faithful servants. And what a beautiful, what a beautiful day that will be for us as well. Amen. You see, for the Philippians, this was just a microscopic foretaste of what's to come when they meet Jesus face to face. So because they joined in Paul's suffering, they will be joined to Christ as it will be for us. That is our hope. Paul then gives us a glimpse of their past history together as he elaborates on the incredible, their incredible generosity in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. What's interesting to note here is that the Philippians were absolutely gripped by the gospel. That it propelled them forward to serve. So much so that they outserved other churches in the region. Why? Why is this possible for us? Because meditating on the sheer grace of God in sending his servant-hearted son to die for us empowers us to serve, or at least it should. When he mentions Macedonia, he is referring to the support from the Philippians for his ministry in Corinth, as we see in, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, where he says, And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For even the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. So, in other words, he essentially tells the Corinthians, I'm not, I don't have to be a burden to you. Because the Philippians have supplied my need. They have fully supplied my every need to survive, to continue this ministry. Isn't it a delightful feeling when you prepare beforehand in your heart to serve a brother or sister in the church and you go to tell them and they respond with, actually, that need has already been fulfilled by someone else in the church. Doesn't that ravish our hearts? Doesn't that cause us to say, amen, praise God. I hope so. Someone is being, someone's needs are being met in the church. Someone is being faithful and someone is graciously receiving that gift. That is absolutely a reason to rejoice. We see a similar instance when Paul mentions Thessalonica 
which, he, which highlights how immediate and frequent their support was for Paul because it happened not too long after he left Macedonia. Whenever there is an exchange of resources or services, as we see in verse 15, what do we assume? When someone does a favor for us, what do we respond, to? What do we respond with? Hey, how much do I owe you? Right? If not, if you don't respond, respond that way, I bet we try to outdo them the next time we get the chance to, don't we? I'm going to outdo you in honor. These types of exchanges of resources often come with hints of a credit paid and a debt owed. Invoices and receipts, as if it was a formal business report. Yet in context, Paul transforms what seems like a typical business transaction into a spiritual worship of God. This is our service. So the spiritual aspect we'll observe more in depth in the next point. But by recalling a previous history, Paul, Paul communicates to them how much he has valued their support and how much he treasures that support in his memory. I'll give, I'll give an example to show how monumental this type of reminder could be. Now, I don't do this often, but at any random time, I look, I look at my wife, Carolyn, and say, hey, honey, thank you for saying yes. To which, she res- to which she responds with, well, to what? And then I respond with, to saying yes when I asked you to marry me. What that communicates to her is that I deeply treasure a distant memory between us, which in turn draws us closer. This is what Paul accomplishes when he recalls their past history together. By giving this recollection of events, Paul lets them know that their generosity over the course of several years remains permanently etched on his heart, in his memory. They helped him survive. So to recap reason number two, Paul writes to express gratitude to his beloved Philippi for their faithful support. Paul then moves to describe the spiritual dimension of their service in their next point. Reason number three, God's delight. Paul writes to remind them that their sacrifices have actually delighted God. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about how what you do in the church actually makes the creator of the universe smile? It's precious. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul continues his use of business terms here, but further clarifies his motive. He is not some anxious, self-interested missionary seeking the church's offering plate, or in our case, the agape box. He's not selfishly seeking for it. He's not hovering over a spreadsheet or wondering where the next meal is going to come from. And he's not fixated on increasing what's in his account, but theirs. He's not consumed by his own self-interest, but for others. Back in chapter one, verse 22, verse 22, he says, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor to me. He says this with the understanding that every act of Christian service of the Christian ministry develops and enriches the person who performs it. 
I've said this once before and I'll say it again here. Our church leadership doesn't encourage you to serve or to give during all the announcements every single time we meet in order to make their lives easier. It's not. We preach and encourage the humble service of the church body because it demonstrates something far more important than just a hefty budget or a fully staffed children's ministry. And what is that? That is faithfulness. We have no greater joy than to see you all walking in the truth. Faith becoming behavior. Now here you may ask, well, that's great, Chris. I'm glad our church has that philosophy of ministry, but how does God feel about it? I know it's pleasing in your eyes, but what about God's? Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The answer to that previous question is yes, absolutely. You see, even though Paul did not seek the gifts, he carefully certifies that all the gifts were delivered to him. He emphasizes that he has far more than enough to continue living because of the humble sacrifice of others. Let me remind everyone of this crucial truth. Christian hospitality and service is not just some humanitarian effort to brainwash people into following our religion. Absolutely not. Christian service is how Christians worship. Christian service is how Christians worship. The social act of friendship is a religious act of worship. Paul communicates this truth by crafting this beautiful imagery of a sweet-smelling, fragrant aroma that is pleasing to God. What in the world does that mean? That God is just somewhere in heaven, just breathing it all in. Sweet-smelling aroma. This phrase is actually pretty incredible. This phrase actually makes me want to think, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd probably read the Bible anyway because of phrases like this. Let's check this out. Now, because Paul is a Hebrew writing to Roman citizens, it's helpful to see how this phrase would have, in, in, would have been received and interpreted by both. So we'll start with the Hebrew context. Hebrew, the first time we see this phrase of an aroma being pleasing to God is after the flood when Noah offers a sacrifice. It is the introduction of a new humanity. As we go through the Old Testament, Moses and other authors use this phrase to describe sacrifices that are offered successfully. That's why it's pleasing to God. And then and this successful offering then opens the door to deeper fellowship with God. That's the goal. That's the goal. Here's a prime example. In Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Here's the phrase, an offering, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So get this. The unblemished lamb of God who took away the sins of the world was successfully sacrificed. And what did that accomplish? It accomplished the ability to make, or it accomplished the deeper fellowship with God. It made it possible. 
that word fragrant is actually pretty interesting because in the Greek, it's euodia. And if you remember uh, in the first, uh, last time I was with you going through verses one through nine, euodia and syntyche were two women in the church that were causing division. So what this means is this play on words means that euodia in the way that she was acting was not being a fragrant aroma to God which is why Christian service and Christian behavior in the church is an act of worship. It's an act of being accepted by God. Her actions were not being pleasing to God. So Paul rebukes her. He rebukes her and Syntyche through the public reading of this letter. All right, so that's the Roman, or that's the Hebrew context. Now we'll look at the Roman context. See, the Romans had a festival called the Triumphal Procession. What they did was when they returned from conquering an enemy, the citizens would litter the ground with flower petals so that when the triumphal procession arrived, the horses, the carriages, and the Roman soldiers would walk over these petals and release an aroma, an aroma that flooded the town square, indicating to everyone that victory had been secured by the king. You see that? Do you see it? If you don't, Paul helps us see it with what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, when he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Victory has been secured by a one true king. And as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, we are accepted delightful in the eyes of the creator of the universe. How much of a blessed comfort is that? That you are delightful because of Christ, that you are acceptable before the eyes of the creator. Not only are we acceptable before God because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, but we are richly supplied. And we'll see that in in verses 19 through 20. Verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul has witnessed the abundance of God's provision in verse 18 which assures the Philippians that they will have the same experience of God's provision in both their spiritual needs and the physical ones. So because we have Paul's life to reflect on, we can humbly say that God does not promise relief from suffering. He doesn't. I'm sorry. But what he does promise is his presence and provision in the midst of it. And that dwarfs your suffering. In fact, He doesn't take away your suffering, but he gives it back to you, redeemed, washed in blood, making it the means by which he will glorify you with Christ. That is what Christianity does to our suffering. It gives it purpose. And boy, do we need that. We need that. If that doesn't or hasn't been a reality for you, Look no further than the cross. 
There we see the culmination of that promise. The all-encompassing example of God's generosity displayed for the whole world to see as he gives us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. In the presence and provision of his Holy Spirit. This whole interaction of giving and receiving between Paul and the Philippians is not just some financial exchange. They relate to each other as residents in Christ, as siblings in the family of God. As they do that, they are reflecting the humble service of their Savior. I love what British missionary Hudson Taylor says about this divine provision in our service to one another. He says, I quote, when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will knock, it will not lack God's supply. If it is in God's will, he will do everything in his power to make it happen. When Paul refers to God's riches and glory, He's referring to the transcendence of God's riches and the final, the final experience of them when we see Jesus face to face, when we see him truly as he is. Does that hope, that hope of seeing the person who redeemed you, does it dominate your everyday life? When you wake up in the morning, are you so fixated on experiencing God's presence that it determines your every thought and action for the day? Do I dare ask if that hope gives you content, contentment? Because it should. You see, a constant meditation on what God has provided to us already will lead to worship. It is absolutely inevitable. If not, you are worshiping a false Jesus. We see this as Paul transitions from verse 19 to verse 20 when he says, now to our God and Father be the glory forever. That word glory in the Greek is doxa, where we get the word doxology. And what do we do when we sing our doxology? It's praise. Praise that is rightly ascribed to God. And how do we praise God? With our minds, meaning with our thought life, with our hearts, meaning with our affections, what we deeply desire, and with our hands, our actions. What is the glory of God? We talk about that very often, don't we? We often say things like, hey, do it for the glory of God. I aim to do all things for his glory. But what does that mean exactly? The glory of God is the revealing of his character to the world. In the Bible, we see that primarily through his creation of the world, the redemption accomplished through his son and the final consummation of all things when he makes all things new. It simply means the revealing of his character. So what does it mean when I do things for the glory of God? It means that my thoughts, affections, and actions, I am making God's character known. That only matters to you. Your everyday life is only determined by that truth if God's character is the most precious, delightful truth in your life. 
His image is impressed on us and we are acting accordingly. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, to be like God. We are to exhibit his character in the world. When he says, amen, Paul closes this section with that precious word, which is a strong affirmation of what is stated. So shall it be. This is how we worship. God's glory has been, is, and always will be. Amen. This is our offerings that are acceptable to God. So to recap reason number three, Paul writes to remind us that our sacrificial service has delighted God. So our last point, Point number four, reason number four for Paul's writing is a graceful greeting. Paul writes to demonstrate that gospel grace has the capacity to transcend all worldly power. Now you may ask, you mean to tell me that God wants all of me? All of it? My thought life, my affections, my actions? my every thought, my every desire, my every action. Chris, I'm not proud of any of those things. How could he accept me anyway? How could he possibly delight in what I do as you say, Chris? How? How was that possible? Let's look at our final point together. Verses 21 through 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. By mentioning this group, Paul is expressing the beloved bond between his present circle of believers and friends in Rome and the community back in Philippi. Paul probably doesn't greet greet people by name in this letter as he does in other letters because he may not want to give them an additional reason for envy and rivalry in an already divided church. Paul labors to build bridges between communities of faith. And since all believers are chosen and redeemed by God, their union with Christ transcends social and political relationships and statuses and any sort of divisions that those things may bring about. This transcendence is primarily demonstrated in mentioning Caesar's household, which was who? Who was Caesar's household? And why is this so radical? Caesar's household consisted of slaves, freemen, managers of property, administrators, and civil servants who were all under imperial direction and power. They bowed to Caesar, everyone in his household. Okay, Chris, so what? So what? What does this have to do with anything? Do you know what this means? It means the gospel message has penetrated the household of the emperor. The most powerful man in the world at the time. This means that imperial power, whether it was Rome or the US or Russia or any other worldly power cannot stop the transformative thrust of the gospel. It's radical. Tim Keller says this about the gospel. The gospel is this, I quote, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. 
Yet at the very same time, we are moved, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Can you imagine being a believer in Philippi? Receiving this letter, receiving word that the same gospel that you are being persecuted for, suffering for in Philippi, is the same gospel saving the very people who are doing the persecution back in Rome. That's the radical nature of the gospel. Yet, what would be your comfort in all of this? What would secure your heart, embolden you to remain faithful and completely ravish you to serve those around you? What would it be? What could it be? To look persecution and death straight in the eye and say, where is your sting? Paul concludes this precious letter with the answer to those questions. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Church, Grace is the power by which we move, breathe, and have our being. Grace always precedes, surrounds, empowers, and concludes the life of obedience. Paul's strong exhortation throughout this letter can be understood and implemented only in the context of grace, only in the context of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such a precious word. That means unmerited favor, favor that we could never earn on our own, only to accept at the expense of another. For God, God, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And to that, I say, hallelujah. So to recap our last point, reason number four, Paul writes to demonstrate that gospel grace has a capacity to transcend all worldly power. This is why the creator of the universe inspired the biblical writers to give you the text that people have died for. The ones you forget. These very words that you leave at home when you're coming to church. These very words that you go about your entire day without thinking about. He gave it to you and not just in written form. In a person who embodied every single letter. And to him, I implore you to believe. To believe in. To repent of your old ways because your old ways are no match for the beauty, the enamoring grace of our Lord. And to that I say, amen. amen. This is Paul's letter to the Philippians and I am incredibly privileged to have walked through it with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven,
Lord, we thank you. We are humbled. We are humbled by your pursuit, your constant and consistent pursuit of our elusive souls. You have made acceptable worship possible at a very, very hefty price. The cost was perfect blood. A perfection that we could never reach. A perfection that we could never work towards and earn. A perfection that you freely gave to us in your holy son, Jesus. And Father, not only that, you gave us your very power that now indwells us to be faithful, to be acceptable before your eyes. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that. I pray, Father, that these words tugged at the heartstrings of those whose hearts are calloused, that you moved in them and will continue to move in them to pursue or to pursue for them to pursue faithfulness in Christ that honors you. And so Father, I am humbled. I am humbled before you to have the incredible privilege to preach such a beautiful passage. And Father, I pray that it is no that it is not only preached, but that it is lived out. For these are the reasons you wrote to us. And Father, to that we say hallelujah. We praise you. We love you. We thank you. You are forever worthy to be praised. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said amen. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Don't Knock It podcast, where we encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing him, to know him before knocking him. If you want to know more about the podcast, you can find us on Instagram. And if you haven't already, please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast or leave a review or a question you'd like for me to unpack on a future episode. Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. Grace and peace, family. Peace.